0: of the first epistle of John, and let's look to the Lord in prayer as we do. Father, we draw near again in the name of Christ, and we ask you now to open our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray, Father, that you would instruct us, correct us, encourage us, each according to his or her need, and bless us together as your people as we spend this time looking at what you have said to us through your servant. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. An old Russian folktale tells the adventures of a man who discovered a cave that was filled with diamonds. And he lighted a torch and he worked his way deep into that mine. And the further he ventured, the larger the diamonds were. So he would fill his pockets at one point and then he'd get a little further into the cave and see, oh, there were bigger ones. So he'd dump out all the smaller ones and put in the the next larger size. Not sure what he would find ahead, so he would put the, fill his pockets, move a little further ahead and then find still larger ones. So he'd dump out those and put the larger ones in as he kept going. His eyes fixed on his heart's treasure he wandered more deeply into the corridors of the cave looking for the next cache of larger diamonds. The further he probed, the more difficult the way. But he was bent on finding the largest gems because he judged that the largest ones would be the most valuable ones. And as he struggled along, he became very thirsty because the cave was dry So he pressed on, not wanting to turn back, but wanting to find the largest gems. Finally, far ahead in the cave, he began to hear a sound that was, to him, the sound of a waterfall. And so he pushed on as his thirst increased, growing more desperate to get to that waterfall. He was now hopelessly lost in the cave. But the prospect of a cool drink kept him moving, and he finally reached the source of the pleasant sound, but as he held the torch up to see the water, to get a glimpse of the stream, it revealed only rivers of sparkling jewels cascading from a shelf high in the cave and scattering in a large pile on the floor before him. The folktale ends with him dying in a pile of precious stones, his pockets full of diamonds, but deprived of the one thing that he needed for life. Now, the spiritual application of that folktale speaks for itself, I think. It's dramatically obvious. And it illustrates verses like, What we find in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, where Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And it also serves to illuminate the next section of John chapter 2 that we're looking at. uh, It's the center of our interest today. We're in John chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 15 through 17 this morning. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, as we take in these words uh, from John, we want to remember, we want to reflect back on the fact that they're being written to you with divine purpose and with divine design. This is the Lord's word to all his beloved, all his beloved children. At every stage of spiritual growth, some are mature in their faith, some are in the, in the very strength of their faith, some are in the very start of their faith. Some have great experience and maturity, others are new and less skilled, And he's writing to all and everything in between those two things, to all the children of the Lord. In short, no one who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, no matter what his or her age or experience, really can ignore these words. Because it's not safe to do so, nor is it wise to ignore them as those who are called and commanded not to be conformed to this world, but to be renewed in your minds in the testing of your faith that you may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This instruction is set before you for your edification and for your growth in grace. Now, Beloved, you don't need a vision or a dream or a word from a friend or a television docudrama to tell you how to live godly in Christ Jesus. It's all right here, beloved. It's all here in God's word. It's the scripture, after all, that alone carries the promise of being inspired by God and profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God at whatever place in their faith and their experience with the Lord might be perfect and thoroughly furnished to all good works. So what do we have here for you fathers and for you children? who know the ancient of days, as he says in the verses before this, and for the youthful who are strong because the word of God abides in you and you are overcoming the evil one. What does he have to say here to us? Well, in this section, you can divide it into three points. First, the command regarding the world. Secondly, the problem with the nature of the world. And thirdly, the warning and reason for the command. So you have the command, the problem with the nature of the world, and the warning and reason for the command concerning the world. So we start with the command regarding the world. In 1 John 2.15, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world, this command is a prohibition and it has a twofold application. A.T. Robertson says that it may be understood as either saying, Stop it, just stop it. If you're doing it, don't do it any longer, or don't get in the habit of doing it if you're not doing it. And either one of those things applies here. If you're doing this, stop. If you aren't doing it, don't get started. And that's what he's commanding. Simply put, the Christian is not to be loving the world or the things that are in the world. Now, beyond that, there are two vital things that we need to understand here. What John means by the term world, of course... And then what he means by the term love. What's he talking about? Loving the world. So we start with the world. What does he mean by the world? Well, there are many uses for that term in Scripture. The term world uh, is used in the Bible to uh, refer to all sorts of things. It can refer to anything that is orderly or even ornamental. Um, He talks about the world of the stars. And uh, that's the orderly uh, setting of the stars in the heavens. Uh, The earth. It can refer to human beings. It can refer to the ungodly who are married to the earth and their physical existence. Uh, The affairs of the world, good or bad, uh, it can refer to. It can refer to the Gentiles in contrast to the Jews. Believers. Believers. In contrast to unbelievers. And finally, as Thayer says in his Greek uh, lexicon, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, and so on, which, although hollow and frail and fleeting, still desire, seduce from God, and, or stir desire, excuse me, seduce from God and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So anything in that sphere that serves in that way. Now, John's intent here seems to encompass this last idea specifically. Later on in this epistle, John writes in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, he writes this, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so he's referring here to that whole aspect of the world that lies under the power and the influence of Satan and uh, is an alluring of uh, uh, testimony into sin and that was just contrary to god's will one might say as robertson does that the decadent and decaying roman empire was the epitome of this description of the world that when john was writing he had that in mind (laughs) look at this world in which we live this this decadent decaying society of which we're a part and It's a position maintained by Paul and even by secular observers of the age as well as historians in retrospect that that was the character of Rome at the time. Hendrickson says in his commentary, it was marked by immorality, greed, bribery, and disregard for human life and dignity. That's a summary of Roman culture at the time that John wrote. This decadence, however would go on for centuries. John's writing in the first century. It's not until the fourth century that these things really begin to to bear their their, uh, final um, impact on Roman society and that empire. So for centuries, they were eating away at the heart of things, until there was nothing left but a hollow culture that, when enough outside pressure was applied, just imploded on itself. And it's important for us to keep that perspective as we think about this worldly influence that John is referring to, because it would be a mistake to imagine that the world that John refers to here was some rare result of moral decay. That decay that plagued the Roman Empire in the first century AD. The truth is, beloved, that the world that John describes and warns you about has always been that way since the fall of man. It continues to be that way today. The world that he's referring to here, the worldliness that he's talking about, it's never changed, it's never been any different. It's manifested itself in different ways in different cultures at different times, but essentially, it's always been the same, and it remains the same. So the world he refers to is the whole body of worldliness that defies, resists and opposes God's will and word and appeals to the fallen nature of men and men and women and children. It's not any single activity but a life of worldliness that he calls his readers to abandon, at least in regards to their love. Candlish describes it as fallen human nature acting itself out in the human family, molding and fashioning the framework of human society in accordance with its own tendencies." This worldliness, beloved, now as ever surrounds you. It's loud, it is relentless, it is brash, it is provocative, it is proud, and it's alluring. And as always, its ways are the ways of death. It robs men and women of their dignity, it enslaves their souls. And it brings them down to ruin. Believers are called out of its ways and into the paths of righteousness by their new life in Jesus Christ. They're called to seek to rescue others from that worldliness. Those who are carried off by by the allure and, and into the ruin that it sets before them. So that's the world. That John is referring to. Now, what does he mean when he says don't love that world? Well, to love that world is to bear a decided affection for it. Just think of it that way a decided affection for it. The word agape is a familiar one to to many of you. And as many of you know, it denotes the result of the deliberate exercise of the judgment the giving a decided preference to one object or person out of many. Frequently, it implies regard and satisfaction rather than affection with special reference to external acts. It tends to be very vivid and enduring. And that's from William Webster's definition. Uh, He's a, a, a Greek scholar from King's College. Another expositor puts it simply this way. The love which he has in mind is that of attachment, intimate fellowship, loyal devotion. Now let me break that down a bit here. John is saying, make no deliberate choice, no deliberate decision to choose the will and the way of the world above the will and the way of your God. In fact, he's going even further than that. He's saying, don't even place them side by side because they have no place side by side. It's the same word for love here when he talks about not loving the world that Jesus uses when he talks about loving God. So in Matthew 22 and verse 37, where Jesus is asked, which are the two great commandments? or which are the great commandments of the Lord, Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You're to, when you see anything side by side to be loved, you're to love God. When you see any way before you, side by side with God's way, you're to love God's way. And that's loving him. And then, that's the first and great commandment, of course, he says, And the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, says Jesus. Now, it's hopeless to love the world, beloved. Because whatever the world promises in the way of satisfaction is fleeting. And that's at its very best. It's bitterly disappointing at its worst. You see, beloved, it is not just what we should not do that is love the world. Above all, because it's an affront to God, because he's the one we should be loving, but it's beneath us. It's beneath the Christian to have this sort of affection towards the world that it should have our attention and our admiration it's beneath us to, for that to be so the things of the world do not deserve our admiration god does as paul says in colossians 3 2 through 3 set your affections on things above not on things on the earth for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's both sinful and a waste to love the world because it's neither worthy of the attention it demands or capable of providing the contentment and the satisfaction that the soul craves. Instead, it leads to emptiness and sorrow. Now this isn't a call, don't misunderstand, this isn't a call to live like monks or to enter a commune and seclude yourself from the whole world. We could never be salt and light if that were the case, and we're commanded to be. So that's not what he has in mind here. What is forbidden is the love of the world and its worldliness, the preference of the world and its worldliness. And we're thinking about our time, our gifts, our abilities, our attention. Rather than spending it and squandering it in worldliness, we are to give those things to the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, beginning there, very familiarly, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And really, you can look at those words as saying you cannot love God and money. You will hate the one and... And love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Which brings us to the second point. That's the command. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. The second point is the problem with the nature of the world. And we find that in verses 16 and 17. The problem is that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, this term, desire or lust, is used to describe a deep longing. That's the idea of it here. A deep longing, especially for anything that's forbidden, but not necessarily so. So when he says, for all that is in the world, the desires or the lusts of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life, he's referring to that which has produces a deep longing. These three examples are provided for us here, but they're not, we're not to think that they're the only desires involved. It's just these three things. They, these provide sort of a general overview of sin, under which many specific sinful desires and actions could be catalogued. Paul uses the same term, desire or lust, in Romans chapter 1, when he speaks of its results there. I'm just reading a little bit of Romans 1, 24 through 31. <clears throat> Therefore God gave them up in the lusts or the desires of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And all those things grow out of desire or lust or passion. And so we have these three categories here in 1 John chapter 2. But under that fall all these other things that flow from those desires. You have the lust of the flesh that John mentions. This is that lust or desire that is felt in or by the flesh. And it's a private thing that often goes unseen except in certain resulting behavior. Paul tells you and me in Galatians that, this is Galatians 5.17, that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. Calvin defines this as, what then is the lust or desire of the flesh but when worldly men, women or children, seeking to live softly and delicately are intent only on their own advantages. Do you see how he takes the lust of the flesh and brings it into a general category that refers to any desire to live softly or without any sacrifice or without any hardship? This, the lust of the eyes, is what arises then from the eyes as organs, And it's also a private thing. It implies to look upon things with an inordinate desire. And this is illustrated, I think, by the words of Jesus when he says in Matthew chapter 5, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the lust of the eye has led to that act of adultery in the heart but you should not limit this idea of the lust of the eyes to our minds in our minds at least to to sexual matters because it involves all the appeals to the eye from one's reflection in the mirror you know that look you get in the mirror when you go there and say, I look pretty good today from that look to the one you see in your phone That's not so good, but I've got some tools here I can make myself look better. Oh, yeah, that looks good. To that, to the idea of pomp and circumstance and honor and and so on. There are some who believe that the more ornate and the more elaborate a liturgy is, or a ritual, the more spiritual it is even though that's contrary to the fact, (laughs) Uh, even to the teaching of the Word of God. But if you just make it a little more elaborate, oh, it's more spiritual. And uh, you see that sometimes played out in different ways. Some have very elaborate rituals that they go through or liturgies. Some have very loose liturgies, but they've got the fog machine and the flashing lights, and now we're really getting spiritual because we've got these matters going on. And all those things are appealed appeal to the eye, and in that way, they draw out the desires. It's not that we're forbidden to enjoy beauty. That's not it at all. We're not forbidden to enjoy it in taste or in sight or in sound, but we're to acknowledge that any one of those may devolve in us into the lust of the flesh or eyes and become loved in a way that offends God. So it's not the thing itself. It's the way it is perceived by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. And then lastly, you have the pride of life. And this encompasses all vain and boastful talk and action, too. Of the three, this is the only outward and overt one. It's a desire that Ordinarily manifests itself in bad behavior. It's one of the things that will plague the culture of the days before the final judgment. Paul, writing to Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 3.2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, our same word here, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. An arrogant soul is one boastful in the outward cares of this life and the matters of this life. Those carried off by this sort of affection are those that Jesus describes as being choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And such are far more concerned with cultivating their interests in the world than they are in growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord or sowing to reap the fruits of righteousness. They're just simply more concerned with their place in the world, their interests in the world, than they are in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and the fruits that lead to righteousness. Paul prayed for the Philippians, saying, this is in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The love of the world produces no such fruit. It does not produce the fruit of righteousness. Then John goes on, he says it more emphatically, these things, he says, these three general categories, and all that falls under them are not of the Father. These originate, he says, with the world. And the picture is this. The world in all its fashion and all its allure and all its attraction draws out of the mind and out of the heart and out of the soul lusts and desires. These sort of lusts and desires. As James says in James chapter 1 beginning of verse 14, James 1, 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And these things in the world, these desires in the world, are designed to draw out of us those lusts and those desires that lead to sin. Again, Hendrickson says, that which has its origin in the world comes not from God, but from the devil. Now, it kind of reminds me of the stellar jays that uh, haunt our yard. Uh, Bonnie will make up this concoction of cornmeal and other goodies for the birds. And there's, there are no jays anywhere around. And she'll take it out to the feeder without a single stellar jay in sight. And she'll spoon it out onto the bird feeder And before she gets back through the door, the the stellar jays are there on the branches looking at it, hoping to get in there and get it. They know right away, somehow, that that concoction is out there. The appearance of it, the fragrance of the meal, it just draws them from wherever they are. And they eat until they're full. And uh, they steal it from every other bird in the yard. And when it's gone, they're off to the next thing. But they're never full. They're never satisfied. They're never lastingly content. If she came back out in the yard again, they'd be right there to get more. The world puts on its display, flashes its colors, sends out its enticing aromas, and it sings its siren songs. And like moths to the flame, men, women, and children are drawn to it, deliberately judging it to be worthy of preference in their lives, regarding it with a fleeting satisfaction, and dedicating themselves to it with ardor and zeal, loving it. That's what John is forbidding us to do. Be... These desires, he says, along with the world, are passing away. The point being that these things are passing by and away, even as he writes, even as you are reading about them, even as you are reading his words here, those things are passing away. The desires, the world, spawns, they all are carried away and are passing along in at a remarkable rate. Let's put it that way. Imagine you're sitting in a theater and a play is being performed on the stage in front of you. Now, this is, once you think of it in that context, because this is different than streaming a show on television. Um, as my hearing ages, sometimes I miss what somebody says. So I go to my little handheld device and back it up and have them say it again so I can hear it better. So I can make sure I hear every word. I can turn it up and go back over. If I don't get the second time, I can do it a third time. I can do it a fourth time. This is different. You're in a play. What happens on the stage only happens then, then it's gone. You can't say, wait a minute, could you do that part again? Because I didn't quite hear everything that was said. And it just keeps going. And all the scenes pass by, all the words are spoken, and then it's done. And it's never the same again. It's never exactly the same again. It might be the same play, but there are going to be little things that are going to be different. It'll never be the same as it was that time when you were sitting there. And that's what John is talking about here when he talks about the things of the world passing away. They go, they're done, they're over, they're not satisfying, they're not lingering, they're not abiding. They, you throw yourself into them and it's over. You get all excited about the Super Bowl for this year and it's over and then it doesn't make any difference starting next season because whoever won last season, it doesn't matter. And it's all over. You can't go back and say, I want to live those days again. You can't do that. No matter how much you love the team, it's never the same going back and saying, oh, I want to watch that game again. It's not the same the second time. Because it all is passing. It's going like that. John is saying that's the way it is with all these things. All the things that draw this lust and attention and interest out of you that are a part of the world, they come and they go and they're gone. And they provide nothing lasting at all. Everything that glitters, attracts, and occupies us in this world is like that. And that's the picture that the Word gives you of the world and all its fashion and all its allure. Nothing connected with it is enduring. King David said this in Psalm 39, beginning in verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end... And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. (sighs) That's it. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Not in this fleeting world. Not in my fleeting life in this world. But in you. Which brings us to the final point this morning. The warning and reason for the command. In the last part of verse 15, John says this, and there's no getting around it, beloved. There's no way around this. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice that the Holy Spirit didn't inspire John here to say, may not be in you. Or perhaps is not in you. It's very clear. He says, is not in you. And then the second half of verse 17, he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Loving the world means no real love of the Father. There's a real danger here beloved, of not accepting the word of God and imagining oneself to be the exception to shutting one's ears to the warning of the word and being in real danger. James warns what he calls the spiritual adulterer, saying this in James 4.4, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And you notice James speaks with the same directness. He doesn't say friendship with the world might be making you an enemy of God. He says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy or herself of God. It's Calvin who says that you can give this warning a hundred times to people, but if one is in love with the world and not with God, they will never hear it unless God moves and opens their ears and their eyes by gracious intervention. He says, because saying these words, it's like to to those who are in love with the world— It's like pouring water on a a ball. You think about that, on a ball. It doesn't catch anywhere because there's nothing for it to catch on. So it just pours over the outside and runs away. There's no place where it actually can settle. And unless the Lord breaks the heart, humbles the heart, and opens the eye to these things, it's like pouring water on a ball. Calvin goes on to say, a corrupt mode of life is here mentioned which has nothing in common with the kingdom of God. That is, when men become so degenerated that they are satisfied with the present life and think no more of a mortal life than mute animals. Whosoever then makes himself thus a slave to earthly lusts cannot be of God. Jesus himself said, and this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you understand where John got those words in in the latter part of verse 17 from? When he says those that are in the the Lord and abide in his word are the ones who will abide listen to it again not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Obedience, beloved, is the key evidence of love. In chapter 5 of this first epistle, and verses 1 and 2, John writes this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. It's only those who have found peace and security in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who truly love God and manifest that love by their obedience, and who are not in love with the world, but who are in love with others, who abide and stand John says, unmoved, imperishable, enduring. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1, the great prophet says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, and all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out, leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, it's at the cross that our sins are forgiven. But it's also true that it's at the cross that our bondage is broken and we are freed from a hopeless romance with the world and all that's in it. It's wise as we prepare to dine together today at the Savior's table to just review in our own hearts our call to love him and others. And to be sure that we have not forgotten the commandment to not love the world. To make sure that we haven't forgotten the words spoken by the Savior to the believers at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, John writing again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This time writing the words of Christ himself. at first. We don't want to be found abandoning the love of Christ because we have been lured into an inordinate love of this world and the things that are in it. Christ has freed us from that. And we in him are to rejoice and celebrate and give thanks for that liberation and look for in our own lives that love for God and that love for others that marks those who are liberated from the love of the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless these things to our hearts together here this morning. Lord, we are men and women and children who are weak by nature. And Lord, the world and its allure is so strong. It is so compelling at times. And Father, you know that sometimes we're tired and sometimes we're discouraged and sometimes we're just busy. And all of those things impact our lives. And Lord, they weaken us in our response to that allure and that attention that the world calls for. And, Lord, the enemy takes advantage of it. He desires to see us drawn off from our love of you and of others to our love of self and this world. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. You've liberated us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the strength and the joy and the hope of our liberation. And let us, Lord, find ourselves loving more and more Our God, loving you more and more and all the beauty of your attributes and and all the testimony and witness of your love for us. Loving your way, the, the way that abides, seeking to store up treasures in heaven. Lord, may we find ourselves being moved by your word through the spirit working that word in us towards this greater love for you and, Lord, for others. That, Father, you might be glorified in our lives and we might know that freedom that we have in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who finds him or herself having to admit that the first love has waned and the love of the world has found fresh traction, Lord, may they right now see that this is the time for repentance. This is the time for the confession of that sin. And Lord, return with a fresh love to this table and partake of these elements which are the the means of our liberation, not the elements themselves, but what they represent through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's any who have never been liberated from the love of the world, May they see afresh its emptiness, its hollowness. And Lord, turn, turn to you, the one whose love is endearing, the one whose love is precious, the one whose love is enduring. May they do it even now, Lord, by your grace. And Father, we pray that as we come to the table together, we'll have a fresh sense born of the spirit of our love for our savior for we ask it all in his precious and holy name amen as we sing this next song you'll notice that